Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray, Lord, that you would teach us today by the power of your spirit how to love you not just with all of our heart and all of our soul, but how to love you today with all of our mind. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever wondered why we say some of the things that we say in the English language? Like uh, eggplant. There's no egg in eggplant. There's no ham in hamburger. Neither is there any pine nor apple in pineapple. English muffins were not invented in England. French fries were not invented in France. And why is it called quicksand when it takes you down slowly? And why is a boxing ring square? And why is it called a guinea pig when it's neither from Guinea nor is it a pig? And why do we park on driveways and we drive on parkways? And how can the weather be as hot as hell on one day and as cold as hell on another? (laughs) And how can a house burn up as it burns down? And how is it that you fill out a form by filling it in? And how is it that a bell is only heard once it goes off? And why is it that when the stars are out, they're visible, but when the lights are out, they're invisible? I could go on and on. We have to admit we say a lot of stupid things in the English language. But today I want to talk to you about one of the stupidest things you can possibly do. One of the stupidest things you can possibly do is live your life like the Israelites lived their lives in the book of Judges. The book of Judges is really summed up by the last verse in the book. Judges chapter 21, verse 25 says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Well, the book of Judges is what we're going to consider for the next few weeks. If you remember, we're doing this series on entitled God's Grand Story, the story of the Bible. We divide the Old Testament into six parts. The first part is beginnings. The book of Genesis, we've been through that. Second part is wilderness wanderings. That's the next four books in your Bible, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then we move into the promised land, the book of Joshua. And we're coming out of that now to the actual book of Judges, where we consider what life was like in the promised land. Now, the events of the book of Judges, just to kind of get your, you know, your mind understanding where this fits in history, takes place after the death of Joshua. Remember, after the death of Moses came Joshua. Joshua leads into the promised land, the Israelites. Well, after the death of Joshua and before the reign of King Saul, first king of Israel, Remember, there's King Saul, then King David, then King Solomon. So between uh, after the death of Joshua and before the reign of King Saul, it's about 300 years. And that is the period of the book of Judges. Now, I really like to look at this part of history like a stretch in a river. In the book of Joshua, the river is flowing really clear and strong. I mean, God's people face challenges. They experience solutions. They get victories. But downriver, we get to the book of Judges, and this part of the river, it gets kind of murky and sluggish as sewage and other contaminants seep into the flow. See, the people of Israel are creating all kinds of trouble for themselves in the book of Judges because they're allowing the evil influences of the peoples around them to influence them, to pollute them. And this really is a sad story of the book of Judges. 
In fact, the book of Judges appears to be more suited for a miniseries on HBO with all of its sex and violence than it does seem to be suited as a book in the Bible. But the grace and the faithfulness of God also shines brightly in the book against this dark backdrop of sin and rebellion of the Israelites. By the grace and faithfulness of God, we actually see that as the people are making all these unwise decisions and basically self-destructing because they are, you know, clinging to the pagan practices of their neighbors, is God in his grace intervenes again and again throughout the book to turn people, to give them a place of peace as they turn back to him. There's actually an interesting cycle in the book of Judges. It happens again and again and again throughout the book. And here's the cycle. There is rebellion by the people. They rebel against God. Then there's retribution by God. Then there's repentance on behalf of the people. Then there's restoration by God and rest from God. So rebellion followed by retribution, then repentance, then restoration, and then rest. And what happens? And then after a time of rest, they rebel again. And the cycle continues. However, these cycles throughout the book of Judges actually form more like a downward spiral because each cycle deteriorates even more than the previous one. It just gets worse and worse throughout the book. So let's jump right in. Judges chapter 2, verse 11 through 19. Let's start there. It says, Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger, so they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreth. And the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them, so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil. As the Lord had spoken, as the Lord had sworn to them, so that they were severely distressed. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. And yet they did not listen to the judges. For they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the ways in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, these deliverers, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groanings because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. But it came about when the judge died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers in following other gods to serve them. They did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. So every time God's people rebelled, what God would do is he would allow these other enemies to afflict them. And in their affliction, they would cry out to God in repentance. What God would do is he'd raise up a deliverer called a judge, and he would deliver them. So in the judges, God's people 
are experiencing, every time they are walking in obedience, they're experiencing peace. But any time they walk in disobedience, God allows them to be oppressed, not just to hurt them, but to wake them up, to cause them to turn back to God in repentance. Why? Because that is best for them to be back connected with God. So it's out of God's goodness that he does it. So their disobedience resulted in affliction from God. But also, we see in the book of Judges, their idolatry always resulted in emptiness. By the way, that's true of idolatry through history. It always results in emptiness. It promises to fill you, whatever the idolatry is, but it leaves you empty. And we also see that idolatry leads to bondage. It did in the book of Judges, and it does throughout history. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to take a closer look at some of these judges in the weeks to come. We're going to look at the life of Deborah, the life of Gideon, the life of Samson in the next few weeks. But today I want to take a look at one of the judges that doesn't get many sermons preached about him. His name is Jephthah. What I want to propose to you today out of his life is that you can have strong faith, but if you also have weak theology, it is a very dangerous and damaging thing that you can do. We're going to see. Uh, Jephthah's story is found in Judges chapter 10, 11, and 12. And he was a strong man of strong faith, but weak theology. And in fact, in his weak theology, he did great damage. Let's pick it up. Judges chapter 10, verse 6 says, Then the sons of Israel again, again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Serve the Baals and the Ashtoreth the gods of the Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the sons of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines. Thus they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. Again, notice verse 6, again, there's the cycle. They did it again. They do evil on the side of the Lord. Again, in fact, this is the sixth time that they have brought the gods in from the surrounding nations and let them become their gods. In fact, they brought these gods in from nations beyond the River Jordan, they brought in gods from the Philistines who were their enemies. They even carted in idols from all these other nations and not only brought in their idols and worshiped their gods, they adopted the lifestyle that went with the idolatry, which included unspeakable sexual perversion and the sacrifice of children. And God, after 20 years of this, he brought about punishment for this behavior. So what does he do? He brought the Philistines in from the west. He brought the Ammonites in from the east. And those nations kept gnawing away at the borders of the Israelites. Now, the Ammonites especially took advantage of them because the Ammonites felt like they had claim to that land beyond the River Jordan. So they attacked all the tribes in the east. And finally, the Ammonites, in their brazenness, they attacked the central tribes of Judah and Benjamin. So the people are now being afflicted, they're being hurt, they're being plundered, the pain they're feeling is deep, and what do they do? They finally begin to cry out to the Lord in their pain, and they actually begin to repent. They put away their foreign gods, they reorient their lives around worship of the one true God, Yahweh. And the text says, we just read it, that God heard their cries and took pity on them. 
And now we're about to read that he now raises up another deliverer, and his name is Jephthah. So let's read it. Judges chapter 10, starting in verse 15. The sons of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned, do to us whatever seems good to you, and please deliver us this day. So they put away their foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he could bear their misery, the misery of Israel, no longer. Then the sons of Ammon were summoned, and they camped in Gilead. And the sons of Israel gathered together and camped in Mizpah. The people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the sons of Ammon? They need a leader. He shall become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a valiant warrior, but he was the son of a harlot. And Gilead was the father of Jephthah. Gilead's wife bore him sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you're the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows gathered themselves about Jephthah, and they went out with him. And it came about after a while that the sons of Ammon fought against Israel. When the sons of Ammon fought against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our chief, that we may fight against the sons of Ammon. Then Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me from my father's house? So why have you come to me now when you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, for this reason we have now returned to you, that you may go with us and fight with the sons of Ammon and become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you take me back to fight against the sons of Ammon and the Lord gives them up to me, will I become your head? The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord is witness between us. Surely we will do as you have said. So Jephthah grows up in this very dysfunctional home. His father was a man by the name of Gilead. He's evidently a leader. And Gilead has a one-night stand with a prostitute. She got pregnant. And Gilead let the prostitute hang around until the baby's born. And then he sends her packing. And Jephthah is now part of the family. Now, obviously, this is a very tense situation. Gilead's wife must have looked at that baby as a result of her husband's infidelity. And his brothers, they despised him. And we all know kids can be cruel, and his brothers were cruel. You can just imagine, they go out to play in the streets, and his brothers say, get out of here, you're not even one of us, your mother's a whore. So the rejection and the pain of this treatment growing up settles into Jephthah's heart, and this uh, rejected boy becomes this angry young man. And when he's old enough, he leaves. He's driven away, actually, and he goes beyond the Jordan to a place called Tob. The text says he became the leader of a band of worthless men. Really, he became the head of a gang. But this is Jephthah's background. So he and his gang actually have a reputation. Everyone knows about these guys, and they know you don't mess with them. They know these guys can fight. So Jephthah is known as a man who's not afraid of anyone. And he's got these other angry men with him. So this news also made its way all the way back to Gilead, 
And they decide, you know, we need him. We need him to come and lead us into battle. So they got together and started talking about what can we do? I know what we'll do. Let's get a committee together to go up and talk to Jephthah and see if we can get him to come back. Let's just say, let bygones be bygones. Let's all let go of old hatreds. And why don't you come back and be our leader? So the elders get this committee together and they go to Tob. Go to talk to him. Now, I just got to think, this must have been a delicious moment for Jephthah. Because here you got, undoubtedly, some of the same kids who mocked him, made fun of him when they were young, grew up to be some of the same ones on this committee that are going to ask him to come back and be their leader. And here they stand, hat in hand, asking him for help. I think that must have been quite a moment for Jephthah. And he shows right away in conversation he hadn't forgotten. He says to them, didn't you hate me? As a kid, you remember you drove me out of my father's house. And now when you're in trouble, you come to me. But they assured him that things have changed now. And uh, after hearing their plea, he says, all right, I'll come back. And I'll be your leader and lead you into battle. But after, if the Lord gives the enemy into my hand, are you going to push me away again? They said, oh, no, we're not going to push you away again. You can be our leader for your lifetime. You can be a judge over us. It's a lifetime appointment. So Jephthah agrees, and he comes back. And here's this mighty man of valor, and he now leads the Israelites against the Ammonites. But the first thing he does is he tries to negotiate with the Ammonites. That's a passage we hadn't read that's in that same story. He tries to convince the Ammonites that they're wrong about the land. That God had, in fact, given the Israelites the land. But much like today, discussions about who has the rights to the land in the Middle East aren't very productive. And so war is going to be a sure thing. But before we get to that, it's important to know something else about Jephthah. The Bible is very clear that he was a man of remarkable faith. We're going to find out in a moment he was also a man of weak theology. But he was a man of great faith. In fact, it says in Judges chapter 11, verse 29, that the, that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. That's only said about three other judges in the book of Judges. And Jephthah used the covenant name of God, Yahweh, more than anyone else in the book of Judges. In addition, we know this about Jephthah, that he went to Mizpah and presented himself before the Lord. I mean, he was a man of spiritual sensitivity but he was also a man of weak theology. Before he went into battle, he made a vow. He did something very stupid, very foolish. He made this vow before God. Let's read it. Judges 11, verse 30. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's, and I'll offer it up as a burnt offering. So he makes this vow. What is he promising? Well, the late pastor Haddon Robinson Riley points out, the people of Israel didn't keep animals in their houses. Jephthah wasn't thinking that maybe a dog or a cat might come out first. And a common animal sacrifice wouldn't have been anything big in the mind of Jephthah to even promise to God. 
So remember, Jephthah grew up in the middle of idolatry. Even though he was devoted to God, he was surrounded by all these pagan practices. And it was a common pagan Ammonite act of devotion to the Ammonite God to practice human sacrifice. He grew up around that. In fact, we know in 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 27, that the Ammonites even sacrificed their children in the fire to their God. Jephthah grew up around that. So Jephthah, after he has this great victory over the Ammonites, he returns to his house, which is probably full of relatives, people probably celebrating word had gotten of the great victory. And after he gets there, here's what happens. Judges 11, verse 34. When Jethah came to his house at Mitzpah, behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourines and with dancing. Now, she was his one and only child. Besides her, he had no son or daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you are among those who trouble me. For I have given my word to the Lord. I cannot take it back. So she said to him, My father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said, since the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the sons of Ammon. See, the awful thing about this vow is he didn't have to make it. In fact, if he had just known the scriptures, he wouldn't have made it. If he had just known the law of Moses, the book of Deuteronomy, if he had a little bit of theology, he would have known that God forbids such a thing. Human sacrifice is strictly forbidden in Deuteronomy chapter 12. Let's read it. It's the law of Moses, Deuteronomy 12, verse 29 through 31. It says, When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations which you're going to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, beware that you're not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, How do these nations serve their gods that I also may do likewise? You shall not behave thus toward the Lord your God for every abominable act which the Lord hates they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. But Jephthah didn't know this. Jephthah didn't know this passage. He didn't know this truth. I mean, how much would you know about God growing up the way he grew up? I mean, how much would you know about God growing up in Tob? We could even ask today, how much would you know about God growing up today in the United States? I'm amazed, really, at how little even self-professing, born-again Christians know about the Bible. Barna Group that does research, lots of surveys, did some, I, I, did some recent surveys and found out that you, do you know that half of self-professing born-again Christians in America, half, 
believe that Satan is not a living being, but a symbol of evil. Half. Do you know that 72% of professing Christians in America argue that people are basically good? 66% of professing Christians say having faith matters more than which faith you pursue. It doesn't even matter what you have faith in for 66% of professing Christians. 64% of professing Christians say that all religious faiths are of equal value. 57% of professing Christians in this country, 57% believe in karma, which comes out of Hinduism and Buddhism, pantheism. And the number of born-again Christians in this country that are more likely to base their beliefs on their feelings than the Bible is really exponential in rise. Now, how much did Jephthah know about God? Well, not knowing the scriptures, he sacrifices his daughter. And he didn't have to do it. Weak theology is dangerous and can be so damaging. Again, I want to propose to you today that weak theology, even if you have strong faith, because Jephthah had strong faith, Weak theology is so damaging to individuals, to families, and to countries. Now, if you come to Grace Community Church, you're going to be taught the Bible. You're going to be taught the the truth without apology on Sunday mornings, in small groups, at Grace Universities, in seminars. You will be taught the Bible. But I also urge you to own your own theological training. Own it yourself. In fact, I, there's a little, little card here you got when you came in. If you didn't get it, get one on the way out. I've just put down 13 books I think every Christian ought to read. And just look at that list. If there's books on this list you hadn't read, read them, study them. Own your own theological grounding. Own it. Know the Scriptures. Know the Bible. And these are, these are some of the classic books that I think every Christian ought to read because they're gifted teachers that are writing here that we can benefit from. But take responsibility to learn on your own. We need to have strong faith, no doubt. But we need to have strong theology. We have to have both of them, both of them. I think we have a country full of professing Christians that have weak theology. They don't know the scriptures. Some may have strong faith, but they have weak theology. And and it puts them in a position, it's only a matter of time. If you have, I don't care how strong your faith is, if you have weak theology, it's only a matter of time before you do something stupid. You know, Roe v. Wade should have never happened in the first place in this country. Should have never happened. Praise God it's been overturned. But the battle rages on. Why? Why did it even happen? And why is the battle going to rage on? Because there are professing Christians in leadership in this country, professing Christians and Catholics like Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, that have weak theology. See, the Bible clearly teaches this truth, that conception, I mean, that, that, that life begins at conception and an abortion is the killing of an unborn baby. The Bible teaches that. In fact, if you want to see it, go, go to gracearlington.com, click the search button and just type in abortion 
And it'll go to a message. We spend the whole message on that. It'll go to some other information. The Bible teaches it. And remember this. Jesus, the only one who's ever risen from the dead, proven he is who he says he is, God come in the flesh. He says the Bible, the Old Testament is the word of God down to the smallest part of a letter. It's unstoppable, unbreakable. It must be accomplished. It's true. And then he promises the writing of the New Testament. He says to the apostles, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, bring everything to your remembrance that I taught you, and then lead you into all truth, and I'll disclose more revelation to you. He promises the writing of the New Testament. So Jesus Christ, the only one who's ever risen from the dead, over 500 witnesses saw him. He says, as the Son of God, the Bible is the Word of God, down to the smallest part of a letter. And so we need to know what the Bible teaches about something. If, if we don't, we end up like Jephthah, doing all kinds of damage, making all kinds of stupid decisions. Our mayor is another example of weak theology. Our mayor proclaims to be a Christian. I've been in meetings where he came to talk with pastors. He claims to be a born-again Christian. And yet he'll say this, and this is a quote, you can talk to me till you're blue in the face and you never prove to me from the Bible that homosexuality is a sin. That's amazing biblical ignorance. The Bible's very clear about this subject. In fact, again, go to graceallington.com, go to search, type in homosexuality, and there's a whole message on what the Bible teaches about that. And by the way, this is, what just happened a few weeks ago in the Methodist denomination, again, we had, we had a, a number of churches split off again because they want to ordain homosexuals as their ministers. And this is just biblical ignorance. You know, they can have, they can have you know, great faith, but they've got weak theology and they're making bad decisions. Do you know that over half millennials, you know, people from 18 to 30 in our country who claim to be Christians, over half of them believe that homosexuality is not even wrong. That's just biblical ignorance. So here we have Jephthah as a man of strong faith, but he's biblically ignorant. In fact, how do we know he's a man of strong faith? Do you know that his name is included in Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of fame of faith? I mean, his name is along with guys like Noah and, and Abraham and Moses. Let's read it. Hebrews eleven thirty two. 32. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions. Jephthah is singled out in Scripture as a man of faith. God saw his faith. His faith pleased God. The issue I'm talking about today is not about faith, whether or not Jephthah had strong faith. He did. The point I'm trying to point out is you can have strong faith and weak theology, and you can do great damage and great pain to yourself, to your family, to your church, to your country. And Jephthah didn't have to do it. He didn't have to sacrifice his daughter. It was wrong for him to do it. Strong faith is good, but weak theology is not good. It can cause great damage. And if you have weak theology, I promise you, if you have weak theology, it's only a matter of time before you do something really stupid. It'll happen. So we all need to own our own biblical training that we really know what the Bible says and we stand on it because we've got a culture that is, is fighting more and more. And... Uh, more and more anger and vitriol just against anyone who stands for what the Bible has to say. You know, we, we live in a time when many churches, you know, are on a slippery slope because they're not holding on to the Bible. It's just a matter of time you're going to slide off that slope and not hold on to anything. 
In a lot of churches also, their main goal is to experience God. And yes, we want to experience the presence of God. We want to love him with all of our heart and our soul. But we also need to love him with our mind. We need to know the truth. Let me ask you this. If you went to a doctor and said, Doctor, I've got a, I've got a real pain in my stomach. Uh, can you help me? And the doctor says, Well, you know, I, I don't pay much attention to medicine. I mean, I took it a long time ago. Uh, but I've got great bedside manner. And you'll feel real comfortable around me. So come over here. Let me just, let's cut you open and look in there. I wouldn't let that guy touch me and neither would you. I mean, I'm all for a friendly doctor, but I want to make sure that he knows his stuff. He needs to know what's right, what's true. Here at Grace Community Church, we want you to experience God. We want you to experience his presence through worship. We want you to experience his love through the saints. But if you have a deep faith in God and you have a shallow theology, you're going to give yourself over to superficiality and you'll give yourself over to different times to nonsense and you can do great damage to yourself and to others. What the world desperately needs is people with great faith and great theology. The world desperately needs people who love God with all their heart and all their soul. And please, 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 I beg you, and love them with all your mind. Let's stand for prayer. Father, we pray for ourselves, Lord, that we would be students of the Bible, Lord. We would be those who take seriously your truth and your word, regardless of the pagan practices that surround us. And, Lord, that we would stand on what is right and true. I pray for strength and courage to rise up with our faith or to do what is right. I also pray that, Lord, you help us really discipline ourselves to learn and love you with all of our minds. So we pray that for ourselves. We pray that for the church in this country, Lord. Pray for pastors who will be unafraid to speak the truth and teach the people what is right. We pray, Lord, for leaders in our government, Lord, that claim to know you, that the spirit of the fear of the Lord would come upon them and they would stand up for what is true and what is right regardless of the cost. We thank you for this recent decision, Lord, but we know the battle is brewing, and the battle is continuing to brew in all kinds of fronts. And we pray, Lord, that, that we would stand up for what is right, we'd do it with love, we'd do it with humility, but we'd be unafraid to stand up for what is true. We pray you'd raise up more that, that will be able to, to lead in that category in every community, Lord, in every church, and across our nation. We pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Now, if you agree with that, would you say amen?